Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. It sounds so good to say that. Romans chapter 6. If you're visiting with us or if you don't have a Bible, there is a black pew Bible uh, underneath one of the seats next to you. You can find where we are on the right side of the book on page 122 down at the bottom. Romans chapter 6. It's taken us 55 sermons to get through Romans chapter 5. I'm... uh, I know that because I saved my document, Romans R-O-M 55, uh, last night. I was a little bit surprised by that. Uh, We are not even a third of the way through, and I am just exhilarated week in and week out by this book. I have never in my life uh, as a pastor been so enriched week in and week out, day in and day out, by the treasures that I'm finding in Romans Romans chapter 6. This morning we're going to look at the first four verses. Let me read those to put them in our minds. Paul says, What shall we say then? Now at that point, we can't start here. So now I want you to rewind the tape back into Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Now let's start our reading. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. In other words... God gave the law through Moses so we would know where we sin and how we sin. But where sin increased, the more we knew, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the best news in the whole world that you cannot outsend God's favor. You cannot outsend God's grace. There's nothing you or I can ever do that would be bigger and greater than the sweetness of God's grace. And as you're basking in that thought, it's easy to let your mind go further than it should. And Paul knows that. So he says, so what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace May increase, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Life as a Christian is hard. But you wouldn't get that from a lot of the evangelistic appeals to give your life to Christ. After my conversion, only a few weeks after I was saved, I went to an all-day seminar with some friends of mine on how to share the gospel. How to evangelize, how to take the truth that you know uh, to be um, about Christ in your heart and give that to someone else. How how you can share the gospel. Seminar was designed to formulate the gospel and respond to the objections that people had to the gospel. The opening line is one that most of us are familiar with. Maybe you know it, maybe you've said it, maybe you've pondered it. But the opening line that you were supposed to give to people in this evangelistic strategy is this. God loves you and has 
a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you have heard that statement, been trained in that statement? You have some familiar with that statement? There's some truth in that statement. And there's some potential for great misunderstanding. Yes, it is true that Jesus promises abundant life to those who believe the gospel. It's a wonderful life because of Christ. And that life is wonderful because our sins are forgiven. We have hope beyond the grave. We have the promise and presence of the Holy Spirit. We have God's word as a sure guide. That is wonderful. But the statement that God has a wonderful plan for our lives can possibly lead some to believe that life as a Christian is rosy and absent of any trial or trouble or difficulty. The truth is that life is wonderful as a believer, but it's also full of trials and trouble. Every believer who has been saved for any amount of time understands this. Just speak to someone who's been a Christian for very long and ask them, did all of your troubles go away when you gave your life to Christ? They will invariably say no. What makes Christianity so hard then? Talk to some of these older saints or more mature saints or some of these saints who've been a Christian for very long And they probably won't tell you that life has gotten more difficult because of the pressures from the world. Most would not tell you it's because of the persecutions that are happening at work. Most will tell you that an honest assessment of their own life is not so much about the trouble that comes from external to who they are, but from inside, internal, who they are. Growth in Christianity and growth in Christ is ultimately a fight against yourself. To be obedient, to be holy. It's constantly saying no to your flesh and yes to the Spirit of God. It's constantly saying no to immediate pleasure in light of the greatness of the glory of God in heaven later. Christianity has many wonderful benefits. But make no mistake, Christianity is fundamentally about delayed gratification, is it not? Ask those people who are tied to to stakes and burnt if it was about immediate gratification. Ask any believer in the fight of his life against a sin and ask them if there's immediate satisfaction in that. What we're talking about here is the process the Bible calls sanctification. It comes from the Greek word that means holy. The the becoming holy process as a believer. When you look up at that graphic that we've put together to outline chapter 6. We've titled this series Aggressive About Sanctification. And it has some very beat up and worn boxing gloves. That's really a great picture To be serious about your walk with the Lord means to be serious about being holy. Being serious about holiness means being aggressive against your sin. Being aggressive against your sin is always about trial and trouble internally. I used to play sports high school and some in college. Played a little football, wrestled most of my life. 
we would always go through drills, whether it was football or wrestling. And when you're going through drills, learning plays, learning new moves, we would always go through at what we called half speed. Going through a play in football, half speed, so you're learning your blocking assignments. You're learning the hole that the back is supposed to hit, the route that the that a, a receiver is supposed to run. If you're on defense, you're learning the schemes and the coverages. You're going half speed. Everything is designed to slow down. When I used to wrestle, it was all about uh, the guy wasn't really giving you a lot of resistance. It was you were learning the move so that you could execute it rightly. It was half speed. It's like going in slow motion. I so wish that our approach to sanctification had a, a mode and a gear that was half speed. That gave us a slow down, slow motion approach to, okay, figure this out. The truth is, you're trying to be sanctified. You're being aggressive about your sin and about holiness full speed all the time. There is no pause. There's no break. There's no half time. There's no half speed. It's all out all the time. And if you ever try to go half speed, you're going to never grab traction in your pursuit of holiness. My suspicion in talking to hundreds, if not thousands of believers who are struggling with A, B, C, X, Y, Z, whatever sin, whatever issue, 99% of those issues could be tackled and could be faced if we were being aggressive about our sanctification. If we were going all out all the time and not pushing pause, if we would stop thinking that we're a victim and start looking, ourse- looking at ourselves as the one on the, the table getting surgery from the Holy Spirit with our assistance in recognizing sin and repenting from it. Are you aggressive about sanctification? How aggressive are you about becoming holy? How aggressive are you in your spiritual life? My father was a Marine. And uh, uh, he was a Marine and uh, went to boot camp in, in um, the early 60s at a place called Paris Island. Some of you military people might know of that. He, he basically would tell me my whole life about um, Paris Island and how horrible it was. He would tell me stories that I would think for sure, he's exaggerating. There's no way you did that. A few years uh, um, ago, I did a, some research on Paris Island and the, its heyday in the early 60s. And it seemed like it was way worse than he even taught me. They put them through all sorts of extreme pressures to prepare them for battle. Sounded crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you crawl for a mile with a backpack on and barbed wire on top of you? I remember asking my dad, you can crawl for a mile with underneath barbed wire. I mean, who, who lays out an a, a obstacle course with a mile of barbed wire? He said, no, we didn't. They had this, this about 10 yards of barbed wire. We would crawl under it. They went to walk and we'd crawl under it again and crawl under it again and crawl under it again. It sounded so crazy. Why, I thought, would you put yourself through that? For what? And the reason was, as my dad explained to me, you can't practice hard enough for a battle in which your life is on the line. 
The same truth applies in your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of sanctification, your growth in Christ. You cannot apply yourself too disciplined. If you get serious and aggressive about your sanctification, you will raise questions like, why am I doing this? People will look at you. Why are you not doing that? Why do you talk differently? Why do you act differently? Why is your life so different? Why are you saying no to your impulses and yes to a standard given by a God you cannot perceive with your senses? So how aggressive are you? How aggressive are we at our growth in holiness as a believer? That question is the subject of Romans chapter 6. And his answer is that you learn to live by learning to die. Not in a physical sense, but dying to yourself. You learn to live in holiness toward God by understanding that it's an exchange of masters. We'll see later in this chapter that we exchange being a slave to sin for being a slave to righteousness. So if you want to be serious about your faith, if you want to find victory over a besetting sin, if you want to grow and mature as a man or woman of God, this is a chapter with which you must wrestle. These first four verses are foundational to the whole. And in these first four verses, we're going to find two foundational issues that you've got to get down, understand, comprehend. Two foundational issues to understand for getting aggressive about our sanctification. This is almost like 101. This is the first course. This is the setup for the rest of the chapter. Two foundational issues to understand for getting aggressive about our sanctification. The first is in verses 1 and 2. Appreciation should not misconstrue sanctification. Now, I'll explain that. Appreciation, understanding grace, as we looked at in, in uh, five verses 21, chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Appreciation of grace should not misconstrue, should not confuse our sanctification process. Verse 1. What shall we say then? What is he saying about that? When he says, what shall we say then? That's in response to those last two verses where we find out that death reigns... Because sin is present. And grace reigns because Christ has died on the cross. And when you learn the great news at the end of chapter 5. That grace is the new captain, the new master, the new one under which we submit, over which he reigns. That is the best news. Once you find out I can be forgiven of all my sins... That is a life changer. That's a game changer. I love when I'm uh, asked, as I was this week, I was getting my hair cut. This girl asked me, she says, what do you do? Some new gal cut my hair, never, never met her before. And I said, no one has ever guessed right, but I'm going to give you a couple guesses. What do you think I do? I was actually impressed. She said, well, you're in finances. And I thought, that's my wife. I am not in finances. She says, well, you're in computers. I said, no, I'm not that smart. You're in sales. And I went, well, 
no, not really. And she says, well, what do you do? I said, I have the greatest job in the whole world. And she says, really? And I said, I, this is my job. I get to tell people how they can be forgiven of all their sins in all of their life and spend eternity with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And she said, really? And that was the end of that part of the conversation. No interest at all. Now, I'm a, I'm a pastor and this is what I, I get to do. But that's, that's your ultimate job description as well, isn't it? Isn't that your job description as a son or daughter of the living God? Is to tell people how they might be forgiven of all their sins for all their life? Is that not good news? That's exactly where chapter 5 ends. Grace reigns. We can be forgiven of everything and anything. There's no one who will ever come to the cross and say, This is too bad, too wicked, I've done it too long for, for too deep of a commitment to be forgiven. There's just no such sin. Which would lead you to say, Paul says, what shall we say then? That is such good news. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, before we answer that question, which is the right question to answer, let me just ask you honestly. Is your understanding of grace so profound, so overwhelming, the reign of grace. Is that such a treasure in your heart? Such a relief to your conscience that it could lead you to say, oh, I don't have to worry about how I live then. Now, that's a bad thing we're going to address. But the good part of that is, is, that, is your understanding of grace that strong? Do you ever get to the point where you just say, it's all grace and it's not my effort that wins me heaven? I think it's a good thing. Paul has for five chapters been preaching about grace, 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 justification by faith. It's what you believe, not what you do. It's all about what he did, not what you can do. It was done on the cross, not done in your effort. Grace, grace, grace. It's all God. It's all Christ. It's about the resurrection. And you could easily conclude that I don't have to do anything. In fact, if God is glorified by forgiving my sin, wouldn't it make sense that the more I sin, the more his grace is exerted, the more God's glorified. That's what these Romans had a tendency to believe. Now remember, this is, a, this is all in real time. This is not a conversation Paul's having with the Romans. He understands that preaching grace so strong would lead to this conclusion. And before we get corrected, I think it's good to stop and say... Do we have that strong a view of grace? This becomes a problem for those who rightly understand the lordship of Christ, however. It's easy on the other side. You get, you get the libertinism and the legalist. And this corrects both. The libertinism says, you know, God will forgive me for anything so I can live like I want. 
The legalist says, no, no, no. Christ wants me to obey him. So if I don't obey enough, then I can't be saved. And I don't know about you, but I can find my heart swinging day by day between those two pendulums. Those of us who believe that Jesus must be Lord to be Savior have to be very careful that we don't move grace as the reigning principle in our life off the throne. Paul's point in chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, is you cannot outsend God's favor or God's grace. But he quickly, in the next verse, heads off that potential disaster, theologically called antinomianism. Maybe you've heard that. Anti against nomos, which is the Greek word for law. Anti-law. In other words, I don't have to live any kind of uh, holy life because I've been forgiven for everything. Paul heads that off. He says, oh, no, no, no. That's not the conclusion you should make. Because grace is reigning, shouldn't allow you to conclude that you can do anything you want and never have to think about your life. The end of verse 1 begs the question raised at the end of chapter 5. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May genoiko. It's the strongest aversive you can, you can say in Greek, absolutely, 100%, no way, may it never be. Now, Paul's going to repeat that. Look down at chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Same principle he restates down in in, uh, verse 15. He asks three rhetorical questions in two verses. May it never be. And then the critical question is at the end of verse 2. How shall we (coughs) who died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? How did you die to sin? Does anyone remember that death? Death is painful. Death is traumatic. Does anyone remember when you died to sin? How did we die to sin? Here are some options. These are some things that people have put forth as to what that means. Some think that a believer is no longer responsive to sin. Does anyone honestly believe that? Are you free from all sin? There are those who believe you can be totally sanctified, who believe you can get to that point. But our experience certainly negates that. A believer also is dead to sin in God's sight. Some people think that, that we're dead to sin in God's sight. Well, yes, in a sense, because the the sin is paid for, but that's not what's going on here. Some think that a believer should and can never sin. That's not what it's talking about. Or that a believer has died to sin's guilt. Well, that's true, but that's not what's talking about here. Paul's going to tell us what he means. That we've died to sin in the next two verses. I was tempted to do verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 and 4. But they say the same thing. He makes an assumption that we understand and know that we've died to sin. Remember last week we went over this, you know, do you not know, do you not know, uh, knowing that, knowing this, knowing that. All this knowing language in the Bible, especially in Romans and especially in Paul. He makes the assumption that we understand something. Look at how he he phrases verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There's an assumption that we know the answer to that question he's giving. 
Look down at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves, think yourselves, deduce to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we're starting to see what he's saying, what he means. The phrase consider yourselves is equivalent to say, do you not know? Do you not understand? Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Don't you know? Do you not know? Consider knowing this. Look down at chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now we're finding a little clearer what he's talking about. Being dead to sin means that our life produces righteousness to God and less and less sin because of our flesh. First Peter 2, clear, clear testimony. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What a great example. Are you in a, in a situation where someone's treating you wrongly? Listen to what Peter says. Follow Jesus' example, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit and found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept Entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Then he goes on. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that, same concept, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. What's the point? Let me reach ahead. He's going to illustrate this with with the uh, illustration of slavery. Not slavery like the old uh, American South. Slavery like in the Roman and Greco times. Where you were owned and bought as a piece of property. There were more slaves than owners. They would freely uh, trade slaves. And there was open market for slaves. You were a slave to one master or you were a slave to another master. And you had absolute loyalty to that master. We'll see that in a few weeks. Paul uses that metaphor and says, you were a slave to sin. Before you come to Christ, you can only sin. You say, well, some people do really nice things. Of course they do. But it's not motivated by the love of God. It's not motivated by the glory of God and by Christ. Unbelievers can be nice people. That's different than obeying God. You're a slave to sin. You can never outrun sin's reign over you. But he says, at the cross, when we believe the cross, now we exchange our slavery to sin to being a slave to righteousness. So borrowing that and bringing that back in now to chapter, to verse 3, to verse 2 rather. He says, you've died to sin, how can you still live in it? Death and life cannot coexist Very simply, if you live in unbroken sin with no repentance and no remorse, no confession, according to Paul, you're not a Christian. You're you're not a believer. No matter what you might think. 
Look at what Paul says. How clear is this? How can we who died to sin still live in it? 1 John 2, 3 says the same thing. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is not teaching, be careful. This is not teaching perfectionism. This is teaching progressivism. We're growing to be more like Christ, not becoming like him in the snap of your fingers. Don't you wish you got saved and all the sin went away? Don't you wish you got saved and there was no more struggle, no more fight, no more bitterness, no more anger, no more frustration, no more jealousy, no more lust, no more you name the sin. We're progressing in sanctification. We're growing in that grace. But what does that mean and how does that work? That is the subject of the next two verses. Secondly, knowing should lead to growing. That's what we've been saying for several weeks. Knowing should lead to to growing. Theology should lead to living. You and I are always living out our theology. Always living out our theology. Right theology, right doctrine should lead to right living. Wrong living can always be traced back to wrong and bad theology. Knowing leads to growing. Now we come back to that that phrase that we looked at last week. Paul says, or do you not know? That's an indictment. You ought to know this. You ought to have your theology in line. When trouble comes, do you have a theology that can sustain that suffering and sustain that trouble, that can endure that trial so that your perspective about God and his ways outweighs the trouble of your trial and your suffering. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Third question he asks in two verses. It's one of the most misunderstood verses, although, by the way, in the whole New Testament, without, because people tend to take it out of context. Is this talking about physical believers' baptism? Kinda, but not really. This is a dry verse. If you brought your towel into this verse, you can leave it on the side. This is a very dry verse. Not a lot of water in this verse. It's not literally talking about baptism, but using it as a metaphor. What's Paul describing here? Now follow the thinking. There's a critical assumption that must be noted to understand what Paul is talking about regarding baptism. Tom Schreiner, who is one of my favorite commentators on the book of Romans, he says this, quote, The reference to baptism is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Since, now listen to this statement. Since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent at this time, to refer to those who were baptized is another way of describing those who are Christians. Those who have put their faith in Christ. End quote. So yes, this is a reference to baptism, 
But Paul is using baptism as a description, as shorthand, as a metaphor for simply being a Christian. We've been baptized into Christ. Identified with him. And remember, baptism was an identification ritual or rite. There there was baptism long before Jesus was on, on the scene. The Essenes were baptizing. John the baptizer, the Baptist, was baptizing. So Jesus didn't invent baptism. Baptism was a way of, uh, of assigning your, your, yourself to a club, a, a movement. It was a way of saying, I belong to this group. As I've told you over and over, my, if I had my preference doing baptism and they would give us permission, I would love to go down to one of the malls and set up a pool or go in their fountain and do baptism right there. And let people know, this person now belongs, is telling you they belong to Christ. They're being incorporated into the body of Christ. They're announcing to the world, this is my identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've got a baptistry back here, and we'll keep using it. But nothing wrong with doing it on the beach. I've done them in pools with unbelievers. This one, one time was a really interesting um, uh, baptism. This, this uh, uh, guy had become radically converted, and he said... Uh, my, my friends won't go to church, but they'll all come to my pool. So he invited, there were like 30 people at this pool. And we did his baptism right there in front of all of his friends. He gave his testimony. We went down, we dunked him. He had, he provided a reception and food for them. That's more the idea that was here. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's, Philip tells him the gospel. They're riding along in this chariot. And the eunuch says, there's a lake. There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? No service, no grandstands. He just wanted to identify himself with Christ. We'll know this in the beginning of um, Christian um, association. Baptism was done very quickly. And baptism was synonymous with those who were Christians. You wouldn't be baptized as a Christian unless you were willing to suffer and even die as a Christian. So when Paul says you're baptized into Christ, he just means you got saved. Yes, baptism was a part of that, but it's a bigger association here in verses 3 and 4. But can I ask you as an aside? Have you (coughs) been baptized as a believer? Going back to Shriner's words. It was virtually unknown, non-existent to have an unbaptized believer. Here's the thing. I've said all along, Christianity is hard. Obeying is hard. Fighting sin is hard. Being holy is hard. Can I just tell you that getting baptized as a point of obedience may be the easiest point of obedience in your entire existence. It takes a few seconds and it's done. It's not like fighting envy or lust or jealousy. It's the, it's the easiest point of obedience. But here's what happens. People who have not been baptized soon after their conversion and put it off a week, month, a year, a decade, or longer, people know them as believers and there tends to be this 
this almost shameful uh, resistance to obeying. He's like, I can't do that. What will people think? Can I just give you a little insight? Let me tell you, if you have put off baptism for a long time and you end up getting baptized, let me tell you what everyone would think. They would think, great. No one would sit back and cross their arms and say, I can't believe that rascal has gone all these years and hasn't been baptized like me. That's, if, if that's your heart, Aaron wants to deal with you. He's bigger than I am. How's that? Seriously, if you're, in that, if you're in that position, talk to me. Talk to your care group leader. Talk to one of the pastors. Get baptized. It's the easiest thing you can do to obey. That's way easier than other parts of Christian obedience. Amen? Do you, can you affirm that? And if you haven't, just put your pride away. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We will we'll rejoice with you. Don't let it be a bigger deal. Don't let pride keep you from being obedient, please. Back to the opening words. Do you not know? Knowing should lead to growing. We should walk in newness of life at the end of verse 4. That's based on do you not know in verse 3. Knowing leads to growing. Or said another way, you will never grow in your faith or become holy without knowing and understanding theology. Ever. How does God work? How does the gospel work? What power is ours to fight sin? How can we say no to the impulses of the flesh and yes to God and his word? Those are the questions for which God's word has answers. But you have to know them to allow that truth to cause you to grow. I have never talked to a man or even a woman, sat in my office and said, I've been struggling with pornography for months or years or weeks or I've never, uh, never talked to a person who says, I'm, I'm having trouble being faithful to my husband or wife, or I'm having trouble as a parent. I've never talked to anyone who gave me their problem, who after that immediately said, and also, I am having the best quiet times of my life. I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm reading four books. I've never been so... so doesn't mean your problems go away, but it means you know how to handle your problems in a much better way. Do you not know? The basic way that preaching and shepherding works is that it informs the mind and the soul of what it needs to know of God and his ways. That's what care groups exist for. That's what preaching exists for, is to inform the soul of data we need to grow. Hopefully that's why you're here this morning. It's the basic mandate for the one and others. It's the basic motivation for getting with a care group. It's the function of why I preach. It should be the goal of why you listen on Sundays. The reference point for sanctification here is the person and work of Christ. Not only what he's done for us in his cross work, but how those actions and facts translate into thinking and living. Look at the historical facts that we have on display here. Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection. Why does he say, by the way, we've been buried with him through baptism into death? Baptism just means belief, association, our faith. He talks about being buried because that proved that Jesus really died. He's taking a shot at what we spoke of back on Resurrection Sunday, the swoon theory. 
Another swoon theory is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He kind of swooned and went to sleep and his heart rate was lowered and he got in the cool of the grave and he was invigorated and refreshed and rose from the dead. No, wasn't the dead. He was just asleep. No, he was dead. How dead? Buried dead. That's how dead. The Romans were very much experts in knowing if a person was dead or not. He was buried dead. Death, burial, and then resurrection. Look at verse 4. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism, through our belief, through our association with Christ into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 4 here serves the ultimate metaphor and connection point for living out our faith based on what we know. Buried, literally dead. Baptism, a catchphrase for becoming a Christian. Resurrection, that little phrase, so as, so that as Christ was raised. Here you find the missing link of sanctification. How? Much power. What resource do you and I have to say no to sin? The same power, the same resource that raised Jesus from no pulse and being dead back to life. So that's where it says, look at the phrase, we too, we also, just like Jesus' resurrection, we too might walk in newness of life. He equates our walking in sanctification with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. As radical as it was that he rose from the grave is as radical as it is that we live a new way of living. I know so many of your testimonies. You're radically converted. You gave your life to Christ and your friends and family said, what happened To you, you are so different. Sometimes you are so strange. It's okay, Paul calls us strangers and aliens. You know this verse. Hear it in this context. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. New creation. God repiped you. God reworked you. God undid you and reformed you as a new creature. Then he says, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. How does walking in newness of life play into your daily living? In Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 24, Paul says... That we walk in newness of life because we learn Christ. We learn him. So how are you growing? And is your growing based on what you know? Is growing dependent on your knowing? Are you putting yourself in the way of truth? This is not a shameless plug for our care groups, but that's what those are are for. Are you putting yourself in the way of truth Sunday morning, Sunday night? Or do you say, well, I don't know who's preaching this Sunday morning or Sunday night, so I don't know that I want to put myself in the way of that truth. Let 
This isn't to make you feel guilty about church sermon. This is to make you feel empowered because you, you can put yourself in the way of truth and learn because growing is based on that. Over and over, we keep going back to this little phrase, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? Well, we're gonna come back to that a lot in, in Romans 6 because it's all about what I know. Right here he says, that newness, that death translates as a living and active transmissible metaphor to us. Dead in sins, dead in trespasses, against God, pursuing our own life. Raised because of belief out of that. Transferred into his kingdom. New affections, new aspirations, new sensitivity to sin. Do you struggle in your walk with the Lord? When you struggle, it is always traced back to what we know and what we believe. Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yeah. How can you grow without living your life on what you know? What are your expectations? Do you really expect that you can grow without that? Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, grace and peace, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, listen, knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Listen to this verse. Seeing that his divine power raised Christ from the dead, has granted to us, you want this? Everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything pertaining to living and being godly, everything we need, he's given us. How do we get that? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you see it? What we know causes us to grow. What we don't know will inhibit us. From growing. So, what are you getting to know? What are you reading? What are you pursuing? Are you taking notes? Are you biding time? Look, if you're going to be here during church, use the time. I told you my, one of the things that I learned, <coughs> it's a grave lesson that had serious consequences on my backside. I remember that my dad told me, been outside, go wash your hands. You're ready for dinner. So I went in, turned on the sink. That's about long enough. Turned it off, walked outside. Was your dad omniscient? Because I think mine was. And he was standing there with his arms folded. He said, Ricky, let me see your hands. They're wet, Dad. You don't want to see my hands. He grabs my hands. They are filthy. He says, son, you were in there. You were already in there. You spent the time. Why didn't you just wash your hands? You were there. I'll finish that story someday when we're talking about the wrath of God. (laughs) You're here. 
You're in Sunday school. You're in church. Why not use that time to inform your soul? That's why we go verse by verse. I don't have anything clever to say. I'm, I'm not. I am of lower intelligence, to be, to be honest. This is not about what the preacher up here says about life. It's about what God says. Who gives us the truth and the words of eternal life. Knowing leads to growing. Are you growing? Because you are pursuing that knowledge. Now, I know it feels incomplete where it says walking in newness of life. What does that mean? Come back next week and he'll be again defining that for us. Let's pray. Father, we have been challenged by this clear identification with your death, burial, and resurrection. That the facts of the gospel have profound truth, profound implications for how we live, how we fight sin, how we pursue holiness. Teach us, inform us on how to walk in newness of life. And as we continue to explore this great chapter, Lord, open our eyes to see your truth about yourself and about us. And to respond in sanctifying aggression. To do anything and everything. To put ourselves in the way of truth. To be more like your son. Because we know that would please you most. Dismiss us now with thoughts and conversations about this passage. About how we can truly apply and encourage each other into faithfulness. While your heads are bowed, let me just encourage you. If you don't know Christ, if, if this is all new and confusing, let me ask you this. Just take some time. Our prayer room is going to be open. Over to my right, Chris and Jill Drent will be there. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Don't leave. Lunch isn't that important. If you have questions, let us serve you. Let us pray with you. Any way we can help, we would love to. Father, now give us great thoughts of a great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.